How are you? Good? Are you good tonight? Great, great. I've had an amazing weekend. I was in Aurora on uh, Friday night, and then I did a men's thing yesterday morning, and then uh, I was uh, at two services in Westlake uh, this morning. This better be Canton. Is it? Are we in Canton? Good. It worked out perfectly then. I'm supposed to be here. What an honor it is here uh, to be here at Trinity. Uh, I've heard about this church for many years, and um, Brother Dave and Marlene, whose reputation precedes them, and uh, the great staff that you have here who've been very welcoming. I am honored to be here. Thank you for letting me come. And I do uh, kind of travel all over the place. I don't travel as much as I used to, but I, you know, I got run over by a truck, so I'm not as fast as I once was, and I've had to slow down, but I am deeply honored to be here and uh, to enjoy the time together. I have some I don't know whether this is not so good news or not, but it, I, I sold all the books I brought. I sold all the movies I brought. Uh, they just kind of like went crazy uh, at the other churches. So I don't really have any of those uh, with me tonight. Uh, you can order them. Uh, we have some pictures of, uh, of some of the books uh, so you can at least kind of see what they look like on a, on a PowerPoint. Maybe we do. And um, I wrote this book first called 90 Minutes in Heaven. I wrote it so I wouldn't have to talk about it. That has not gone well at all. Uh, nine million copies of the book has just kind of just been crazy in 46 languages. So it's just been, uh, you know, it's just been off the hook, really. I just, I just can't imagine when I finished this, uh, you know, 16 years ago that we would still be talking about it, but we seem to still be talking about it. So it's, uh, it's the biography, the autobiography of what happened to me, which is about what we're about to talk about. And then there are some other books that I wrote, a devotional book and uh, a book called Heaven is Real, Lessons on Earthly Joy. It's about how to get through tragedy and pain and suffering and emerge on the other side. It's based on the principle, if you know where you're going, shouldn't you be having a better trip on the way? And then I wrote a book called Getting to Heaven, Departing Instructions for Your Life Now. The words of Jesus about how to live on the way to heaven. If you know where you're going, how do you live between now and then? It uh, specializes in John chapter 13 through 17. Uh, the words of Jesus about how to live on the way to heaven. My wife wrote a book called um, A Walk to the Dark. You're going to find out in a few minutes that my wife is the hero of this story. I am not. I survived an accident. She overcame an accident for our church, for our three children, for her for certainly for me, and um, she's the hero. Her book is a, is a primer on how to get through dark nights and how to prepare for them before they come, a walk through the dark. reason I'm telling you this is because we don't have any of these books, but you can order them, and uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, Christian Book Distributors, anywhere has them, and um, incidentally, a night, uh, the new book, which this is, this, this is it, brand new book, called People I Met at the Gates of Heaven, Who's Going to Be There Because of You? And that's uh, kind of where I want to land tonight, uh, very close to my heart. If, if you will, this is really a sequel to this book, even though I wrote several books in between, because people have been kind of pressing me for a long time to talk about the people who met me at the gates of heaven and what they had to do with being there. And that's a very important question because you, you, it's kind of given away in the subtitle, who's going to be in heaven because of you. This book actually comes out in paperback this week. So it'll be cheaper than 
this hardback edition is. And incidentally, the uh, Spanish edition of um, People I Met at the Gates of Heaven comes out this week also, different distributor. Uh, and we do have, uh, have had copies of uh, Noventa Minutos en el Cielo for a long, long time. Um, we, I live in Texas, so we have uh, many, many, many Spanish-speaking people in Texas, and we're happy that it's in that situation. So those are the things. You saw the movie trailer. They made a movie out of this thing um, five years ago. So uh, it's very strange to have a movie made about your life. I must say, uh, people acting your life and saying your words on a large screen. It's really very strange to see such a thing. Uh, I was played in the movie by um, Hayden Christensen, the young man who was famous for all the Star Wars movies, uh, playing Anakin Skywalker. So my kids have started calling me Darth Preacher now. <laughs> and uh, there is a rumor, and it's unconfirmed, that in the final episode of Star Wars, which is coming out next month, Anakin Skywalker may make a return. Um, and so uh, look for that, I guess. Uh, I don't know for sure. But, it, it, you know, Hannah, uh, Hayden is a very, very fine young man. In the movie, um, uh, one of my preacher friends, uh, old mentor friends, was played by Fred Thompson, Senator Fred Thompson, the actor and, uh, and senator from uh, Tennessee, I think. And uh, Michael W. Smith, one of the great songwriters of uh, the past 30 or 40 years, plays my best friend in the movie, in addition to writing the music for the movie. Uh, Dwight Yoakam uh, plays the Texas lawyer, which is perfect casting. And uh, so it's kind of quite a cast, but I must say uh, it's, it's difficult for us to watch uh, and relive this over and over again. But it seems to have a powerful effect on people uh, in the movie theaters and on television and uh, in, in your home. So... That movie is also available in lots of places. I never really dreamed I'd have a movie made about me. A lady walked up to a book signing the other day with this book, 90 Minutes in Heaven, and it was all torn up and dirty. I mean, it was in bad shape. So I almost said, you know, what happened to your book? But I didn't, thankfully. I'm signing it. I sign all my books. See you at the gate. You'll understand that in a few minutes. See you at the gate and put my name. And so... I'm signing the book, and she says, this is not my book. I said, oh, it's, it's not your book. She says, no, it belonged to my daughter, your daughter's book. She said, yes, I did not own, know that my daughter owned your book. I said, okay. She said, it was in her backpack when she got off the school bus and was run over and killed. I said, this is your daughter's book. Yeah. I said, was your daughter a follower of Jesus? Oh, yes, yeah, she said. My daughter was very devoted to the Lord. In fact, she was a great inspiration to me. I said, ma'am, I'm sorry for your temporary separation from your little girl. It's real, but it won't last. She says, I couldn't read your book for a long time. I said, I understand that. I often hand it to people, and I say, when you're ready, you can read it. You'll know. She said, I finally opened it up. When I opened it up, I realized my little girl had written all kinds of things in your book. She had written in the margins. She drew arrows to things. She underlined things, scriptures that are all over your book. And she said it was unbelievable. It was like she was talking to me. And when I finished reading your book, Mr. Piper, I realized that I was not ready to go to heaven myself. So I gave my heart to Jesus when I closed your book. 
Praise God. She said, I know where I'm going now. My question is, do you? We're taking reservations tonight. That's what I do. That's why I'm here. I'm trying to help people get into heaven and help them have a better trip on the way. So if you're ready for that, here we go. I guess we didn't, uh, weren't able to, to get the PowerPoint together. So I'll just tell the story. I was killed on the way home from church, from a pri- uh, conference. I mean, I was, I was at a church conference, a, a conference for preachers about, oh, I would say 80 miles, 90 miles north of Houston, Texas. I was serving a church south of Houston, Texas, which is important because it's a really big place. So that, that adds a lot of time to any trip that you make if you have to cross Houston anytime, any direction. So I left the conference on a Wednesday morning, and I am headed to church. Uh, I'm not even going home. It's, it, though it's in the morning, I've got to drive all that way, and I don't really have time to go home first. So I have worked on the Bible study I'm going to do that night at what we called a prayer meeting in those days on Wednesday nights. I have got a stack of sermons on the seat beside me because I'm going to be in a new sermon series the following Sunday morning called I Believe in a Great God. And that's the first sermon of the series. It's on the top of a stack of sermons on the seat beside me as I was leaving the conference center. The next sermon was I Believe in Jesus, the Son of God. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the shared meal of the new covenant. I believe in baptism. You could see where I was going with all these doctrinal sermons. I never did get to preach any of those sermons in my church. They were destroyed, except one. State policeman who worked the accident found the front page, I believe in a great God. And so he began to look around and find other pages that had been kind of thrown all over the bridge after the truck hit me. He put that sermon back together again. It's the only one that survived the accident. I have that sermon, I believe in a great God, in my office, in my home. It is covered in my dried blood. Well, only about 10 minutes out of the gates of this conference center, it was raining, it was 35 degrees, which in Houston is like, bring on your parkas and muffs, you know, that's really cold down there. I know that's kind of lawn chair weather here, but it's cold down there. (laughs) So I'm on my way home. It was really a miserable day weather-wise, no matter where it was, and so I'm not really paying attention to that. So I went went a a different way home. I decided to go a different way home just to kind of, you know, do something different. I'm a curious person by nature. I had never been that way, so I decided to go home that way. Maybe you're a curious person by nature. Maybe, Maybe that's why you're in church tonight, and we thank you for being here. We're glad you came. And I encourage you to come back when I'm not here because they do this every week. (laughs) And everybody needs a church home. Everybody needs a church home. I don't know anybody in the 21st century functions without one. You'll find out in a minute that we couldn't have possibly made it through this without our church family. So I encourage you to consider being a part of this. God is doing something special here. Very obvious. So here I am on my way to that church, South Park Church in Alvin, Texas. I didn't make it. So I'm crossing a bridge. Maybe you're curious. You're here to hear a dead guy speak. That's a good reason to go to church. No, curiosity is a great reason to go to church because you'll learn stuff every time you show up here. So I turned to the right. I went across this lake because the conference center was built on a lake. 
and something you know about, you know, the lake not very far from here and the conference center faced the lake. So I, I left that. Not 10 minutes out of the conference center, there's an old bridge. I mean, it's an old bridge. It's like very narrow, it's two lane, and it has a superstructure over the top of it, like we would see in a railway trestle nowadays. But the bridge was built in the 1930s, since been replaced, but in those days, it was the only way across that lake. I see it in front of me, it's long, and I'm driving onto it. I didn't drive off of it. Before I exited the opposite end of the bridge, coming down a steep embankment onto the bridge at a very high rate of speed was a tractor-trailer truck. He was driving probably 25 miles an hour over the speed limit. I was at, right at speed limit, 45, I think, and so he said he swerved to miss a car that pulled out at the last minute at the end of his bridge, at the, his end of the bridge, and, and so he swerved to miss that car and he hit me head on. It was a horrific collision. I mean, he shoved my small car up against the railing of the bridge and he went over the top of it, off the back of the car, swerved back over in the lane he was supposed to be in and struck two more cars before he brought the rig to a halt near the end of that long bridge. So a horrific crash on the Trinity River Bridge. It's right over the Trinity River. If you go to Dallas-Fort Worth, the Trinity River goes through Dallas and Fort Worth and meets just south of there. Two forks of the Trinity River. Well, it goes all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. It passes over under this bridge where I was driving. I didn't exit the other end. So he kills me instantly, which I think brings up an interesting question. What am I doing in Canton? <laughs> which is exactly the same question I'm going to ask you. What are you doing here that matters? What do you have to show for your life up to this point in time? Just put a bookmark in that. We'll come back to it. So the EMTs, four of them arrived on the scene because there were four vehicles, lots and lots of police. They're working the accident. Miraculously, no one else was hurt but me. The other two drivers, cars total, they were not hurt badly. The truck driver was way above the accident. He was treated and released. So that meant that all the paramedics who came to the scene worked on only one victim. It was me. And they were doing everything they could to try to revive me, try to resuscitate me. That's their job. These people are heroes. They try to save lives. In spite of their best efforts of the police first and then the paramedics afterwards, they were unsuccessful. I was pronounced dead by four paramedics. The body was covered up under a tarp in the car because it was still raining and and it was gruesome in the car. All the windows are gone. It was just gruesome in the car. Look at there. There's the conference center. Okay? That's, that, that's the place I left. And the next picture should be the bridge, if we can get that. Yeah, there's the old bridge, built in the 1930s. And I was on that bridge at the opposite end. I didn't make it off. So, the truck runs over me, runs over me. This next picture is from a newspaper, a local newspaper. And I must tell you, if, if we have it to bring it up, it's not very good. But you know, we didn't plan to talk about any of this stuff later. Yeah, we just had to gather some information to try to reproduce it. This is actually the front page of the, of the newspaper, local newspaper. I am under a tarp inside of that car. And you can see all the paramedics and the firefighters and the police that are gathered around. I have been declared dead. I'm under the tarp. They're waiting for a medical examiner to come to the scene to do the paperwork so the body can be taken away. 
So it's a standstill on the bridge. Anytime you have a fatality, you have to have an investigation. And so there is a fatality, I'm it. Back behind me is not only a lot of local traffic, but all of those pastors who were at the pastor's conference who have left, and they're trying to get back to their churches for Wednesday night. They're not going anywhere now. One of those pastors left his car and walked all the way down to where this accident is. He saw the carnage, he saw the, the wreckage, and he says to one of those policemen, officer, I am a pastor in Houston. I see there's been a terrible wreck here. I would like to pray for the victims. The policeman was very nice. He said, that's very kind, but there is no one to pray for. Everyone else is okay. They've been treated and released except the man in the red car. He's dead. He's a fatality. He didn't make it. Dick Honorecker, pastor from Houston, heard the voice of God. I think God is doing a lot more speaking than we are listening. And here's what God said to the preacher. Pray for the man in the red car. That didn't make any sense to him. He never really had thought about praying for someone who was already dead. But you know what? He was obedient, which is always what God is looking for. If you only did things you always understood, you probably wouldn't do very much. God is looking for your faith. That's what he's looking for. So by faith, this guy pleads with the policeman to let him get in the car. And they didn't want that because they were afraid he would get hurt, you know, by all the twisted metal and broken glass. So he wins. That's not even fair, is it, a preacher and a policeman? So he gets his way and gets in the car. He's actually in this car. In that picture, he has crawled in from the back. The next picture shows you the real car. That's the real car. But you can see how damaged it was and the trajectory of the truck when it went right over the top of me. That was a hatchback car. The hatchback's knocked off. Dick crawls in from the back of the car. He lifts up the tarp the body's been covered with, and he finds me, what's left of me. He realizes the only thing I didn't break in the accident was my right arm, and it is the only thing I did not break. So from behind me, he places his hand on my right shoulder and begins to pray for me even though he does not know who I am. He has no idea I had just come from the same conference. You wouldn't have recognized me if you knew me. So he's got his hand on my shoulder. He's praying. He's not the only one praying by that time because they did kind of search me to find my ID. When they found my ID, they called my home. Nobody was at home. My wife taught school, public school for 34 years and she's taught in a private Christian school for about five years. She was not at home that day. She was teaching school. In fact, she was supposed to be in the car with me to go on this conference. It was a three-day getaway for mom and dad. And sometimes you need a three-day getaway if you're a mom and dad. <laughs> Friday night, she got a call from her principal. Eva, you're going to have six new students tomorrow morning. I'm sorry I have to tell you this. Well, she decided there on the spot that she was not going to put six new students with a substitute teacher the first day of school. She decided not to go with me on the trip. We were not happy about that. But I got up the next morning. She went to school. I went on the trip. So she wasn't in the car with me. They finally tracked her down. But before that, they called my church, South Park Church, Alvin, Texas. They told them that I had been in a terrible wreck, but not that I was fatality because next of kin has not been notified yet. So the church launches into a massive prayer meeting. In fact, they, remember phone books? Does anybody remember phone books? 
They got the Houston phone book out and ripped out all the pages that had church names and numbers on them, passed them out to the staff, and everybody started calling churches in the, in the greater area. And those churches, they asked them to call five more churches. And it just started spreading across the United States, through Ohio, you name it. I've met, I have met thousands of people in the past 30 years who prayed for me that day, and they didn't know me at all. I usually just look at them and say, it worked, keep praying. <laughs> They're praying for me, and, and God is listening. He's not only speaking, he's listening. And so this went on for an hour and a half. Yeah. Yeah, the accident happened at 11.45 a.m. there on the bridge. At 1.15 in the afternoon, Dick Onorecker is still in the wreckage of that car praying over my dead body. He hasn't moved. He's begun to alternate verbal prayers with musical prayers. You know what musical prayers are? We just did some. And he's singing a very old musical prayer, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. This is a great old tune. It's about 150 years old now. He's singing that song holding on to my right shoulder under the tarp in the dark, and he's been praying for an hour and a half. Suddenly, without any warning, as he sang that song, I started singing the song with him. And he got out of the car really fast. Yeah, wouldn't you? And then he did something you might not have done. He went over to that same policeman and he said, Officer, the dead man is singing. And nobody believed that because it's unbelievable. I don't think I would have believed it, but, but he knew he heard me sing. I have no idea who he was. and I don't know why. I didn't know why I was singing. Well, he convinced them to come and check on me, at least. You know, they, didn't, they, they basically said to him, look, we know a dead man when we see one, and we're professionals. And he said, no, I'm telling you. So they came over and checked on me and found that I was alive, not very. Here's what happened. When the truck struck me, my head banged against the side of the car, which was not padded at all. You can see in the next picture profile of the car. So I had massive brain damage. My wife still thinks I have massive brain damage. <laughs> And uh, this works out really well sometimes. I had blood coming out of my eyes, ears, nose, of course, mouth. But my heart had stopped, so the blood stopped. I was impaled on the steering wheel that turned horizontal and went right into my chest. This is long before airbags. So my chest was crushed. I had massive internal injuries. The dashboard collapsed on both of my legs. There was no space between the seat and the dashboard. My right leg was broken at the knee, so it no longer went this direction. It went the opposite direction. It's, it severed my left leg just above the knee because I slid in the seat a little bit, and it just cut my left leg in two, four and a half inches of femur, the largest bone in the body, was disintegrated and flew out of the car into the river below. I put my arm up when the truck was coming for me, and apparently, and that's the moment the truck ran over me and took my arm into the back seat of the car, and from here forward was lying on the back seat of the car. It was an unsurvivable, horrendous accident. But they're feverishly working to get me out of it. You can see in that picture where they had to saw the roof off and then lay it back down on top to try to get me out as close to one piece as possible. Removing a living person is very different from removing someone who's not from a wrecked car. They put me in an ambulance. They started taking me to hospitals. Hospitals, because none of the hospitals could treat the injuries that I had. They finally decided at a regional hospital I had to be transferred to a level one trauma center, the nearest one of those, Houston, Texas, which is where I was headed, Memorial Hermann Hospital. 
That accident happened at 11.45 on the bridge. I arrived at Memorial Hermann Hospital in Houston at 6.15 that night, six and a half hours after the wreck. And I would be in the hospital, and we probably have a picture of the emergency room entrance at Herman Hospital. Well, we had a picture of all the hospitals. But I arrived at that. Well, let's, let's look at this. That's uh, the man who played uh, Dick Honorecker in the movie, and you could see him walking towards the wreck. And the policeman is actually looking down at the front page of my Sunday sermon the following week, I Believe in a Great God, as he's beginning to pick up the pieces of it. I had lunch with this man named Michael who plays Dick on a record. Before this scene was shot, he never spoke. He cried the entire lunch, and he couldn't eat. He was so torn up about doing this scene. Next picture is, uh, should be the hospitals uh, that I went to, but I wound up at Herman Hospital in Houston. And I was in that hospital and another one after at St. Luke's for 13 months, and I had 34 operations to reassemble me so that I could stand here in front of you tonight. So, here's two things, at least, that you can take with you tonight. Number one, I believe that God answers prayer. And number two, I believe God is still in the miracle business today. Now, God answers prayer. Right before Jesus was arrested and executed, he is with his followers for what we now refer to as the Last Supper. All of you are going to have one of these one of these days. You won't know what it is, more than likely, but you will have a Last Supper. The death rate here is 100%. Well, it is. I mean, you have one option if you don't die, and that's for Jesus to return during your lifetime so you can be raptured with him. But otherwise, you're going to take your last breath here, and you're going to take your next breath somewhere else. So, here we are. I'm in the hospital, and I'm, I, I don't really actually even know what happened to me until they explained it to me. I certainly don't remember the accident. But Jesus is talking about things that they will need to know after he leaves here in the flesh. He has just washed their feet, chapter 13 of John's gospel, because they failed to do so. I love, not that they failed to do so, but I love what happened after they failed to do so. He chose them anyway. Yeah, we've probably got people in here tonight who have promised God something maybe a long time ago, maybe even recently. I have news for you. He'll choose you anyway. If he's got something for you to do, he'll choose you tonight. So he's trying to encourage them because when they came into Jerusalem early in the week, I mean, it was lights out. Everybody was hosannaing Jesus. Everything was going well. They were all so glad to see him. And now things have taken a turn for the worse because of some of the things that Jesus has taught. Some of the people in town are really against this. They really don't like this to the point, and some of them had never liked him, where they want to arrest him. Some want to kill him. And they know this because they're followers of Jesus, because of their association, their lives are in danger. They know it. As far as we know, all of them are eventually martyred except one. So they had a dangerous life ahead of them, more dangerous than they could have known. So into that situation in the upper room in Jerusalem, right above King David's tomb, it's really still there, King David's tomb, upper room, Jesus has some words for them which apply to you as much as they ever applied to those guys. Let not your hearts be troubled. Do you believe in God? 
then believe in me also, he said. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, you will be also. And you know where I'm going, and you know how to get there. Hey, if you read the Synoptic Gospels, if you read the Acts of the Apostles, you'll find that Jesus referred to this many times. This shouldn't have been a foreign thing to them at all. I mean, they should have known this is what was going to happen because it had been previously stated. But it was kind of like being in church sometimes. They weren't listening. How do we know this? Thomas, of course, Thomas, stands up from that table there in the upper room and says, we, we don't know where you're going, and we don't know how to get there. Perfectly logical questions. In fact, people have been asking that question since then. How do I get to heaven? Great question. Maybe it's a question on your heart. Maybe you're even a part of a church or something, but really, you've never really truly answered in your heart, how do I get to heaven? Because here is Jesus' answer. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Lots of aisles in this church. Some people on this planet think that all paths lead to God. That if you're just faithful in what you believe, they believe that if you're a good person, that's not what the Bible says. It's not what Jesus says. He said, all, all paths lead to me. I am the way. I am the truth. And if you're looking for the way to heaven, if you're looking for truth, if you're looking for a better life than the one you're living so far, I give you Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. All paths don't lead to heaven. One path does. Jesus said, no man comes unto the Father except through I found that out the hard way on a lonely highway in East Texas when a truck ran over me. I believed it. I just wasn't planning to die that day. Who is? So I'm in the hospital. Right after Jesus says the statement at the beginning of John chapter 14 about let not your hearts be troubled, he makes this statement. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. That sounds pretty comprehensive, doesn't it? You may ask me for anything in my name. I want to emphasize the little phrase in the middle, in my name, because that's really the subject of that particular promise from God is that inside the will of God, inside the will of God for you, you can ask for anything and, and Jesus will provide. He says he will. I mean, these people were asking for me to live. They didn't know I was already dead. And they're praying to God that, that I'll be okay, that I'll, I'll walk again maybe. I mean, they don't know the circumstances. They just know the wreck is bad. They were told the wreck was bad, but they don't know the details. So you may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. I think it means exactly what it says. I think we have not because we ask not. God wants to have a relationship with you. You were created for fellowship with God. He wants to hear from his children. You may ask me for anything in my name. Now, I'm going to show you a picture that's really not intended to be gruesome. I'm sorry, it just is. It's a picture of me in the hospital. I, um, I had double pneumonia, which is deadly. I mean, forget the injuries, which were catastrophic. I am going to die of pneumonia because I'm laying flat on my back. I can't move, and my lungs are filling with fluid. It's a very, very, very difficult situation. 
mostly deadly. So I can't be elevated because I'm in traction on three of my four limbs that are, they have no bones in them anymore. So I'm just laying there. They can't lift me up. They bring my wife in and they tell her that I will not survive the night. I think it was three nights after the accident because my, of the pneumonia. And so they're proposing removing all of my limbs except this one so they could set me up and give me breathing treatments. They tell her there's a new treatment that's just been patented in this country three weeks before my accident to stretch bones that remain inside the body. It involves putting stainless steel halos around your limb, your arm, your leg, your ankle, your neck, whatever's broken, and then putting drilling holes through you and out the other side and crisscrossing those wires in the middle of the remaining bone. And then they turn screws on those halos four times a day, stretch the bones that are remaining and try to close the gap where the bone is missing. It's a very ingenious, hideous, horrible, painful solution to a problem. Took 11 hours to put that on my leg. I wore it for 11 months. The one on my arm is actually a transplant and a, a graft. You cannot find another bone to replace the femur. There is no other bone that big. Can't be transplanted. But you can do it in the arm. So the bones in this arm actually came from my right pelvis. They harvested the bones out of my hip and they put them in my arm and kind of where the two small bones are. And then they transplanted some muscles from other places and then they transplanted skin from my right leg onto this arm. Medical people have a wonderful knack for finding things you didn't even hurt and hurt those for you to fix the other stuff. <laughs> so I wore that thing on my arm for about eight or nine months and you could see that they hold the arm in place by putting three rods through your arm and out the other side at top and bottom and a bar of steel above it and below it so the arm will be in the place of way it should be if it was still connected. It was a nightmare. My dad and my mother would drive 250 miles to see me one way, sometimes two or three times a week. My mother had a kennel. They had to go back and forth. My mother came in the hospital room one time and she saw this and she passed out on the floor. They revived her and took her outside. My mother never came in the room again to see me. She would stand outside the door and talk to me and I would talk back to her. My dad is a, a veteran of World War I, World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. He served the U.S. Army in all three of those wars. I mean, that's extremely rare and unique, but he did it. World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. An Army veteran. And he was a some crusty dude. He was a drill sergeant for a long time. My father was a drill sergeant, and he only had boys. You can use your imagination. So my dad is sitting at the foot of the bed, out of the picture, this old crusty master sergeant, Ralph Piper. So he sits there, and he talks about football, he talks about cars, which is what we usually talked about. But he got up, and he walked around to the side of the bed. If you look real close, you might be able to see my hand up on my chest, the only thing I didn't break. And so my father, the old drill sergeant, picks up my hand, and he whispers in my ear, even though there was no one else in the room, and here's what he said. Son, I would give anything to trade places with you. It's my dad. I might have been a 38-year-old man, but as far as he was concerned, 
I was just his little boy. He hated to see me like this. I've got children and grandchildren. I know. I understand. He meant what he said. I promise you. I did get better and he got worse. So years later, I found myself going 250 miles the other way to see him in the hospital, to see him at the old, old war hero's home, which they have near where he lived, and eventually in hospice. He didn't weigh 190 pounds anymore. He weighed 100. He was in a fetal position, and I'm holding my father's old arthritic hand and telling him how much I loved him. I would walk outside the room, and my mother would follow me out there, my mother and father were married for 61 years. She never left his side when he was here in this country. He was off fighting wars a lot of times. She came outside and she took my hands and my mother looked up into my eyes and this is what she said to me. Son, the doctors have done everything they can to make your father feel better. They really do. But nothing, absolutely nothing makes him feel better than when one of his children comes to talk to him. When's the last time you really talked to God the Father? He wants to hear from his children. Let me ask you a question, Ohio. What do you think would happen around this part of this state if you decided to pray for people who are not ready to go to heaven with the kind of passion Dick Honorecker did over my dead body in the car? I'll tell you what would happen. You don't have enough seats in here. A revival would break out here. Why not here? Why not now? If you want to see it, it's going to start with prayer. Prayer. God answers prayer. In this same, same discourse, Jesus is, it's John chapter 14, he's talking about miracles. And here's what he said. Remember in this one, he says, you may, you may ask me for anything. He, he, he says, anyone, <laughs> anyone who has faith in me, meaning himself, Jesus, will do what I have been doing and will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. Let's see if we can wrap our brains around that. I mean, it just blows my mind to think that Jesus is saying after he leaves here, greater things are going to happen than happened while he was here. Now, consider this. His people, the people who are listening to this, but he says anyone, I think that includes us, who has faith in him, Anyone who has faith in him, I think we have that verse somewhere in the, in the PowerPoint. He says, anyone, and he's talking to everybody, and then he says, you've seen what I've done. And the Bible says there's a lot of things Jesus did that are not even recorded in the Bible. But what he did say is that I changed water into wine, I made the lame walk, I gave sight to the blind, I was standing outside the tomb, and you were seeing when I said, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus comes waltzing out of the tomb. They all saw this, and now he's telling them they're going to do greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. I think God's doing some of his best stuff today. I see it all the time. I know it works. I was told I would never walk again, even if they put that leg back on. I was told if they put the arm on, it'd just be down here by my side, and if I wanted to move it, I'd have to pick it up with the other arm and move it like this, but this is my arm right here, and these are my legs right here. Why is that important? Because if you live long enough, you're going to need a miracle. Amen. Maybe several. Good news. God's still in the miracle business. Amen. Lady walks up at a book table with a book like this, and she's clutching it, like squeezing it, and she gets down very uncomfortably close to my face. 
And she says this. This is her first words. You sent me this book in jail. I said, yes, ma'am, we send a lot of books to people who are incarcerated. Anytime they ask, we send it to them. It's the only way they can get books. It's to be sent from the author or the publisher. Only way. She says, I was in jail for my sixth DWI. I'm an alcoholic. I couldn't do community service anymore. I couldn't do probation. I was in jail. I am an alcoholic. I got arrested six times, and there were many more times when I didn't. I thought I was going to die in there. I'd never been in jail. I'm in my 60s. I finally sought out another lady who was in there, and I said to her, how in the world do you make it in here? She said, it's not easy. Lady, you're never going to be the same again after you get out of here. All right. What, what advice do you have? She says, I'll tell you what. There's a book that's floating around here in the jail somewhere about this guy who was killed in a car wreck, and they told him he was never going to be the same again, and he wasn't, but he wasn't bitter. He ended up being better. You ought to read that book. What's it called? 90 Minutes in Heaven. She went online. She ordered it. We sent it to her. She served her time. She's now standing in the lobby of a church, and she's holding the book like this, and she's saying, you sent me this book at jail, and then she's saying, I have come today to ask you to pray for me. I said, of course I'll pray for you. She says, three weeks from the day in this church where we're standing right now, I'm going to start leading Celebrate Recovery for Alcoholics and Addicts. I don't know about you, but I think that's a miracle. I think God's doing some of his best stuff now. If you live long enough, you're going to need one. I had a hard time getting through this. I don't mind telling you. I, I saw heaven and had it taken away from me. I came back to a hideous life in a bed. I mean, a 38-year-old man who can't do anything for himself at all. I know you can use your imagination on that. It was bad. And I lay there for a long time. There I am, proving that I actually had dark hair at one time in my life. <laughs> People will look at the movie and they'll say, oh, wait a minute, Hayden has like black hair in the movie. Well, I had kind of dark hair. Too. They don't believe it, but it's true. I did. There it is right there. This next picture is probably even a little more graphic. You can, well, let's go over that. We'll come back to this. Thank you. I apologize for just directing traffic up here, but we haven't seen this one in a long time. You can see uh, the thing on my leg. You can barely see the thing on my arm. You can see where my right leg was broken at the knee. You can see where they took some of the skin off my right leg to put up. It was really pathetic. I mean, men would walk in to see me that knew me for all my life, and they would just fall out right on the floor, just pass out. They would just gasp and pass out. I mean, it was that hideous because no one had ever seen anything like this. It was unproven, it was unused, it was unseen, and so they would walk in and see it. So here I am in the bed. I've been there for a long time, months, and I've had it. I, I've had it. I'm depressed. I can get no good news from anybody because they couldn't make any promises they, would, they knew they couldn't keep. And I've had heaven taken away from me, and I've never told anybody I saw it. So it's my own fault, really, my own fault, nobody's fault but mine. But what I really wanted to do, and maybe this will make sense, what I really wanted to do was talk to somebody who had gone through this. So I kind of know how it turns out. I, I just wanted to talk to somebody. Everybody was nice to me. They came to the hospital, they were praying for you, we care about you. I knew all that. What I wanted was somebody who had been through this so they could say, here's how it's going to turn out. And it may, it may be bad, but okay, bad is, I know, okay? It's all right with me. Just let me know. So I'm laying in the bed at 3 a.m., 
and I'm shaking my fist at God. Let me tell you, God would rather you be angry at him than ignore him. And I, in fact, I had a conversation with a lady at, at the church this morning whose 22-year-old son was, had cancer. My daughter, Nicole, has stage four kidney cancer. She has one of her kidneys gone already. She'll be in the hospital on Tuesday for another surgery. She's my little girl, Nicole. So I covet your prayers for her. I believe in prayer. This woman says, my son has esophageal cancer. He's 22. She showed me a picture of him. He was all bowed up. He was like a weightlifter. He was a good-looking kid, 22 years old. And she said, he is so angry at God. I said, that's better than, you know, not having any attitude at all. Because if you're angry at God, it means you're going to have to talk to God. It means you're going to have to have an attitude towards God. God can handle your anger. God gets angry sometimes. So he can handle it. It's the beginning of a relationship, potentially. So I'm angry, but you know what? I'm really, I'm frustrated. I'm frustrated because I can't get any answers from anybody. And so I'm doing this, and it doesn't bother him a bit. And I'm saying, can't you send somebody here who understands what this is like? If I could just talk to somebody, I think I could step forward. So I'm listening to some Christian music beside the bed. All the lists of the songs are in the book. And here's what God said to the music directly, voice of God. Here's what he said to me. He said, this is not about you. This is about me. And what I can do through you now, I could never do before the truck hits you. Son, you need to get over your pity party. And you need to turn your test into a testimony. You need to take your mess and make a message that will bless other people. You need to take up the pain and find a purpose for it. And that purpose is to hold the hand of other people and say, I understand how you feel. Together we'll get through this. You can do that. Lost your husband? Lost your job? Bankruptcy? Divorce? Tornadoes? Fire? Hey, you can either shake your fist at God and say, why did this happen to me? Or you can reach out to other people going through a long, dark night and say, I understand how you feel. Together, we'll get through this. I call that finding a new normal. I've been talking about it for 35 years. Man came up to me recently who'd lost his wife. Man, they were married 40 or 50 years. And he was very emotional understandably. He said, I just don't know what I'm going to do. He said, God took my wife. She was really the good one. I'm not that good. Why would he take her and leave me? I said, that's a good question. I said, but let me ask you this question. Was your wife a follower of Jesus? Yes. Oh, yes. She sure was. He, she was just a, an inspiration to everyone who knew her, especially me. I said, well, then she belonged to God before she belonged to you. He just loaned her to you. Aren't we all alone to each other? I mean, who belongs to another person outright? No, no, our lives overlap. They're circles. You know, we don't all, we're not all born on the same day. We don't all die on the same day. Our, our lives overlap. God gives us to each other. When I held my daughter for the first time, I knew she was a gift from God. I'm a steward of hers. I, I'm responsible for her. I will love her forever. But she was God's first before she was mine. And he's taking good care of her no matter what. I said, sir, do you know anybody else has lost someone close to them? 
oh yeah, there's a lot of people, some at the church, some where I work. I said, why don't you go help them get through this? Why don't you put your arm out around them? Why don't you reach out to them and say, I, I, don't, I don't know the person that you lost, but I want to help you get through this because I've been through it myself. I said, then you'll know why you went through it. You won't be thinking about your loss anymore as much. You'll be thinking about theirs. You could do that. No matter what the dark night is that somebody's going through. Or you could shake your fist at God and say, why? If you're not looking up here, I'm going to encourage you to do so because I'm going to show you something. This is what I was doing that morning at 3 a.m. And this is how I started the next day of the rest of my life. Let me help you. I understand how you feel. Bitter? Better. I think you know who you are, and I think you know what you need to do. Tonight would be a good night to start. When the truck ran over me, I was standing at the gates of heaven. I didn't go to a long tunnel. There wasn't a bright light at the end of the tunnel. I didn't have a near-death experience. When you're dead an hour and a half, you're not nearly dead. I was dead. Just like that. I was on the bridge, and, and suddenly I'm at the gates of heaven. If you want to read Revelation 21, I wish we had time to go through the whole thing because Revelation 21 is packed with descriptions of heaven. One of the things it talks about is the 12 gates of heaven. 12 gates in heaven. Not one, 12. There are three on each side of the great city of God, indicating that people come from all over to enter heaven. They come from all tribes to enter heaven. They have to have faith in Christ. That gets you in. But they do come from the east and the north and the south into heaven. I'm at one gate. I'm surrounded by people I had known and loved in life. The gate is made of pearl. It's a gate of pearl. It's dazzling. It's iridescent. It actually looks like it's a living gate, but it's just because of the light reflecting off the gate. I'm panning down from the gate of pearl, the magnificent gate, and I'm looking into the eyes of my grandfather. I was with him when he died. I was very close to my grandfather. I told you my dad was in the army. He was often gone. Papa never left. My grandfather was an illiterate carpenter. He could take lumber and nails and build places like this. I saw him do it with my own eyes. There were summers when I was a little boy that I would go out with him sometimes as he was building something, and I would hand him nails. And occasionally I would even pick up the wrong nail. He would always hammer it anyway and look down at me and say, Donnie, you're a big help to Papa. And I believed him. And I really loved him. I knew he loved me. And then one night, he died. I got the phone call. I raced over to his house out in the country. I rode with him in the ambulance and watched them work on him behind me. We got to the hospital, and they did everything they could. But the doctor came out and said, I'm sorry. We lost him. I got a lot of broken bones, but nothing hurts like a broken heart. And when Papa died, it broke my heart. Last time I saw him, he was in a casket at the church. He did not look good. Now I'm standing at the gates of heaven, and there he is to greet me. Now, I will do one kind of exception, because you need to know this. I wasn't on the site of the 
of the taping of these scenes about heaven when they made them, or these people would not have come out in really nice street clothes because nobody in heaven wears clothes like this. <laughs> they showed me these scenes, and I said, oh, no, we can't. I said, people wear, in heaven wearing these resplendent robes, these gleaming robes. They're just magnificent. They said, well, we can't go back and shoot these scenes. It would cost thousands of dollars. I said, well, just don't put them in there. So we compromised, and there they are. Papa's standing there, and he's got his hands extended to me. My grandfather lost three fingers on one hand when he was a lumberjack during the Depression, and two on another when he was a welder during World War II on, battle, on destroyers. And so uh, I was fascinated by those nubs, you know. I'd never seen somebody with just little nubs on their fingers. Uh, I would crawl in his lap when I was a little kid and just be fascinated. He's standing there at the gates of heaven. He's got his arms extended to me. He spoke a language I've never heard before and fully understood and said, welcome home, Donnie. That's what he called me here on earth. Only one he did. I looked down at the hands that used to hold me that were missing fingers and all of his fingers were there. I had never seen them before. Papa was perfect in heaven. Not a blemish on him, not a scar on him. There's only one person in heaven with scars, and that's Jesus Christ, to remind the rest of us of how we got there. The only man-made thing in heaven are the scars of Jesus. So Papa looked good. If you want to look good, heaven is where you want to be. I mean, you look nice now, but you're really going to look good in heaven. I had a lady come back I don't have a surface, after a service like this, and she said, Brother Don, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. I may not have an answer, but I'll try. She said, is there any chance at all when I get to heaven, I'll be a size two? <laughs> and, and let me just say this to you. She was not a size two. I said, ma'am, I can't really promise you about sizes. And she threw her head back and laughed and said, I'm going anyway. <laughs> the question is, are you? Are you sure? We're taking reservations tonight. My great-grandfather, mother, was standing right beside my grandfather. She was a victim of osteoporosis. On earth, she walked like this. She couldn't straighten up. Her bones had collapsed. So when she was looking at you, she was actually looking up. She was not missing her fingers like my grandfather was. She was missing her teeth. She had no teeth. She had a set of teeth made that she referred to as store-bought teeth, which she did not like at all. Consequently, she did not wear them but once a week to church on Sunday mornings. <laughs> when she got home from church, she would take her teeth out and put them in a glass of water beside the sink in the kitchen. When we were little boys and we didn't have anything to do, sometimes we just sneak into the kitchen and stare at Grandma's teeth. They were always smiling back at us. But my great-grandmother, Hattie, was standing at the gates of heaven to greet me. She was standing upright, a good six inches taller there than she was here. And the first thing she did when she saw me was she smiled at me. And for the first time in my existence, I saw my grandmother's real smile. And she was beautiful, perfect. So shall we all be in heaven. My girlfriend from high school was there who invited me to church when I, before I got saved. She's the one who encouraged me to come to church. Obviously, that relationship didn't work out romantically, but she died at 32 from diabetes. Two of my friends from high school I used to sit in the cafeteria with. They both played football. They were great, great, great athletes. 
One of them was killed in a car wreck. The other one was a drowning victim at 18 and 19, respectively. I saw them there. I remember their funerals. Oh, what is it like when you're 18 years old and lose a friend and you go see him in a casket in a funeral home? We, I don't know if you're ever prepared for that, but we certainly weren't prepared for it at 18. But he met me at the gates of heaven. He was there to greet me when I arrived. Let me say this to you. People in heaven don't miss you. They expect you. The Bible says when somebody commits their heart to Jesus here, and you can do it tonight, they write your name in a registration book up there called the Lamb's Book of Life. You want your name in this book, the Lamb's Book of Life. It's just like checking into a hotel. First thing they ask when you walk in the door is, do you have a reservation? If you've given your heart to Jesus, you have a reservation in heaven, and it's recorded in a book. These people all had their names in a book. None of them were planning to die the day they died, whether it was 18 or 80, but they were prepared. Heaven is a prepared place for prepared people. You're not going because you're good. You're not going because you're a member of this church. Both of those are really good things. You're going because you have an authentic, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's how you get in. These people all had that relationship, and guess what? They all influenced me for Jesus. The people who met me at the gates of heaven were people who helped me get there. They took me to church when nobody else would. They gave me a Bible. They lived a Christian life in front of me so I could see what one was. They invited me to church from my next door. Would, would Donnie like to go to church? He can go to church with us. We're picking up neighborhood kids. Yeah, I think he would. Yes, ma'am. Mom, I'd like to go. Let me, let me go. I got in the car with Miss Norris, and I went to church. Miss Norris was there. She deserved to be there. She helped me get there. So when I came back from the gates of heaven, the question I had was, who's going to be there because of me? Who am I influencing to get into heaven? And I'm asking you the same question. What are you doing in Ohio? What are you doing in Canton? What are you doing here? I suggest that what we should be doing here is helping everyone else get there. And we got lots of work to do. At school, at work, your neighborhood, wherever you live, your friends, your family. I know you love them here. Don't you want to love them there? Bring them to church next Sunday. Don't even wait till next Sunday. Bring them next time the door's open. Tell them about Jesus. Give them a Bible if they don't have one. I bet we can find one for you if you don't have one to give. It's, it's an active thing. I mean, you do have people you love here, you care about here, and I know you want to see them in heaven someday. Who's going to be there because of you? I'm passing these welcoming committee people now, the reunion, and I'm passing through music. If you like music, you're going to have a spectacular time in heaven. They got great music up there. And the astounding thing to me was thousands of songs at the same time without chaos. All the songs were symbiotic. They fit together. You could distinguish each song with your heavenly ears. Only one song rose above all the others. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. Because he is. And we are not. Which brings up, the, really, the compelling question of the evening. How did I get to heaven if I am not holy? I've got witnesses. Sunday morning when I was 16 years old, sitting right where you are, sir, third row, very end. 
The pastor closes the service with these words. Who wants to go to heaven this morning? We're taking reservations today. I had gone to church because Jan invited me. I'd known Barry and, 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 and some of the other kids, and they took me to church when I didn't have any other way to go. They had influenced me the whole time I was there. Mike, he would see me on Sunday morning, Monday morning at school if I didn't show up on church on Sunday and say, where were you yesterday? I'll come and get you next week. Miss Norris was there. She took me when I was nine years old. My mother didn't have a driver's license or a car. Miss Norris knew that. She picked me up. All kinds of people who had met me. My grandparents. They met me at the gates. So that Sunday morning when he gave an altar call, an invitation, I knew he was talking about me. I left my seat. I went down. I took the pastor's hand and said, I want to go to heaven, pastor. And he said, son, this is the best decision you'll ever make. 22 years later on a lonely highway in East Texas, I was run over by a truck and killed. I wasn't planning to die that day, but I was ready. Are you ready? We're getting ready to leave church shortly. If you can get killed on the way to church, you can fill in the blank there. This is urgent. This is an urgent thing. I bring an urgent message to you. You have to be prepared. Life is short, brief. You need to be ready. Wasn't planning to die that day. I'm passing through the angels now. They're all over the place. They not only sing and praise God, I could hear their wings as I was approaching the gates of heaven. What a comforting, encouraging sound that was. I did see colors there I've never seen here. I smelled aromas there I've never smelled here. Do you know what one of the aromas of heaven is? One of the smells of heaven? The prayers of the saints emanating from the throne of God. What a sweet aroma that is. Heaven is a sensory explosion. It's a buffet for the senses. You've never seen anything or felt anything like it. I certainly didn't want to come back here. I'm now going in through the gate. It's quite small by comparison because we go in one at a time. It's a personal thing. It's a very thick wall, and I'm emerging inside, and I could see a golden boulevard running down the middle of the city. There are mansions on both sides of the street. Everyone gets one. But what I really wanted to do was climb the hill, the pinnacle, high and lift it up. And I just wanted to say to God, thank you for letting me come. Thank you. Thank you. But I never got a chance. You could see the river of life flowing from the throne of God, the tree of life which we can eat of in heaven. Just the most real thing ever. As I emerged inside, it all stopped. I found myself suddenly in silence and darkness, and I tried to make my voice say, what is going on? I just got here, but I couldn't make it speak. And then suddenly I heard a voice behind me. Would you put up that slide at the very end where I'm in the bed? Yeah. I tried to make my voice speak what's going on. I just got here. And before I could say that, I heard a voice directly in just behind me in the darkness. And it was that preacher singing that song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And I was back here. Didn't even know what happened to me, really, until somebody explained it to me. And then this, day after day, week after week, month after month, really three years, 
rehab. Every day of my life, I would lay flat on my back because it's the only way I could lay. So I was always looking up. And here's what I would ask. Why? Why did you let me see that and take it away from me? I didn't get an answer for a while, but I have one now. I've had it for a long time. Here is the answer. So I could be in Canton, Ohio on a night like this and tell you to your face, heaven is real and Jesus is the way. So I'm asking you, let's clap for that. You're going to take your last breath here one of these days, and maybe before you know, before you even imagine, where's your next breath going to be? I give you Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. If you want to go to the Father, you're going to have to go through Jesus. So has there ever been a time in your life when you really, honestly, faithfully trusted Christ for your salvation? Has there ever been a time in your life when you actually looked around you and really thought of the people that you care about and, and asked God to help you help them know him? By name. I think specific prayers bring specific answers. You might not have thought about it before you came in here tonight, but this is a service where everybody in this room can make a decision tonight. In a moment, pastor's going to come and conclude the service as the Lord leads him. Here's my prayer for you. I may not see you again here. There's a lot of you, and there's only one of me. So my prayer for you tonight is, if I don't see you here, one day I will see you there at the gates. And may God help us be found faithful until that day. God bless you.